I expect that the expectations of the actual visit are going to be elevated. And that's why we have to make sure that the providers doing the telemedicine visits are prepared. Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the executive session, a monthly discussion with the healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. Currently, the United States is experiencing a crisis as the COVID-19 pandemic has spread throughout the country. As concerns over spreading the virus increased, many physicians have opted to see fewer patients in their offices and expanded their use of telemedicine. In a recent interview, CMS Administrator Seema Verma stated that telemedicine has increased 40 times over pre-COVID-19 usage. However, as practices increase the use of telemedicine, many doctors and patients have expressed concern that the level of care may not be equal to the traditional office visit and that telemedicine may compromise the physician-patient relationship. At the same time, other healthcare leaders describe the problems with telemedicine as growing pains that can be overcome with training, increased familiarity with the technology. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Nakamovich, Chief Clinical Partnership Officer, Devoted Health, and the former Senior Vice President and Chief Clinical Integration and Network Development Officer, New York Presbyterian, and Dr. Raul Sharma, Professor and Chair, Department of Emergency Medicine, Will Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian, New York, New York. Doctors Nakamovich and Sharma have authored several journal articles on how to improve telemedicine and the skill set needed to effectively deliver telemedicine. Their first article, Is It Time for New Medical Specialty? The Medical Virtualist, was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in November 2017, and they followed up with numerous other articles and postings on the topic. Dr. Dakimovich and Dr. Sharma, can you please introduce yourself and describe your background? Thank you, David. Thank you for inviting us to participate in this podcast. Correct, I am the Chief Clinical Partnership Officer of Devoted Health, which is a next generation Medicare Advantage plan which leverages technology and people uh, for a new approach to healthcare delivery. Prior to that, my career was very much on the hospital and physician side, most recently at New York Presbyterian as the inaugural Chief Clinical Integration and Network Development Officer we had helped create a regional footprint of hospitals and doctors with Wild Cornell Medicine and Columbia Doctors. My New York life was preceded by a long tenure in Cleveland, where I developed and led a regional network of physicians, both academic and for-profit, and was deeply involved in practice management and the interface with integrated delivery systems. I've been privileged to engage on a national level with many healthcare organizations, including, of course, being on the board of MGMA for a number of years, where I became acquainted with you, David, and had the opportunity then and subsequently to work with you on issues of healthcare delivery and data analysis in which you excel. Uh, My clinical background is in pulmonary and critical care medicine, which I hold dear. I met Dr. Sharma at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell. He is one of the pioneers and leaders of telehealth at New York Presbyterian and indeed nationally. Rahul was recognized in 2019 as one of modern healthcare's top 25 innovators in healthcare. At New York Presbyterian, we worked together in regionalizing telehealth and came upon the realization that the medical virtualist was here to stay, and that was a few years ago, and that indeed some physicians were going to have their entire careers committed through this medium of healthcare delivery. Great. Rose? 
Thank you very much, uh, Michael and, and Dave. Uh, so I am currently the professor and chairman of emergency medicine here at New York Presbyterian Wild Cornell Medicine. And our telehealth journey uh, started in 2016 here at NYP Wild Cornell Medicine. And we've been national leaders in tel telemedicine. Our first program that we launched was our emergency department-based express care program. When we first launched it, I think a lot of people thought we were crazy in uh, thinking that we could actually do telemedicine in the emergency department. But it's been quite successful. Uh, since that time, we've launched several innovative telemedicine initiatives in our department and at our institution, including a focus on training and education, which we'll get into later. We have very strong infrastructure here at NYP and Wild Cornell Medicine in telemedicine and digital healthcare. We've been the recipient of several national awards, including the 2017 Emergency Care Innovation of the Year Award. Yeah. Let's begin with an overview of the basics of telemedicine. Dr. Nakamovich and Dr. Sharma. Uh, well, I'll kick off on this one. In telemedicine, you know, used to be tied up in confusing definitions. Was it telephone alone? Was it video? Uh, was it text? Was it email? And indeed, telehealth reflects all of those and basically reflects the delivery of healthcare services remotely by a variety of telecommunication modalities. You know, when Rahul and I wrote our first article in 2017, and telehealth was not a mainstream activity, uh, even though it was present, we focused on the fact that as a society, we were becoming very accustomed to using web-based services for everything on a daily basis, buying clothes, supplies, ordering Ubers, making restaurant reservations, paying bills. And we, like others, thought that there was gonna be an expectation from consumers of healthcare that these services would become available in healthcare more broadly, even though at the time, which is pretty recent, the adoption was very slow. The modalities of uh, telehealth were used largely for urgent care and minor ailments. Uh, I think the purpose of this uh, podcast will be to discuss how this has evolved really dramatically over the last eight months. Dr. Sharma, as executive director of the Center for Virtual Care at Wheel Cornell Medicine, you've been a leader in telemedicine that trained hundreds of physicians and other healthcare providers in the fundamentals of virtual care. Can you provide our listeners with the need for formal telemedicine training? Yeah, Dave, when we first started implementing our telemedicine programs, we felt that it was equally important not only to have the technology, but it was so important to make sure that our providers were trained appropriately. Now, we know that it only takes literally a few seconds for a virtual care visit to go poorly. So we then established a training center in 2019, and prior to that, we were still doing training uh, of providers with the mission to improve the delivery of virtual care services across the health system. Our center provides formal telemedicine training to clinicians at all levels. And this is not just doctors. These are our residents. These are our fellows, our physician assistants, our nurse practitioners, nurses, care managers, and medical students, and in a variety of clinical specialties. Through our training, we focus on the soft skill set required to conduct telemedicine visits with a camera often referred to as website manner. Now, we talk a lot about bedside manner, and the analogy I like to give is, we would never put a medical student, a nursing student, or any healthcare provider in front of a patient and do a visit without giving them the right skill set, without giving them physical diagnosis, without give, telling them how to do a history and physical. 
So why is it okay to do that with telemedicine? We have to make sure that our providers are trained and also at all levels, including the technical and medical legal aspects, which I'll get into later. Appreciation of these training elements yields benefits for both providers and institutions by increasing care proficiency, as well as awareness of potential risk. Prior to COVID, we had trained hundreds of providers already. During the COVID pandemic, we trained about 200 providers throughout our enterprise here at New York Presbyterian, and we continue to do so not only at our institution, but also to healthcare practitioners throughout the United States. Now, let's go back to your JAMA article, and that article described how many physicians provide telemedicine services without tr formal training, and you, you suggested that a formalized, recognized specialty would codify the techniques necessary to deliver care and the competencies needed for virtual care. Can you provide our listeners with some of the ideas you presented in that article, as well as things that you're currently doing to improve the delivery of care for telemedicine? Yeah, Dave, when we came up with this idea of this medical virtualist, I will tell you there were many people that felt that you don't need it, uh, that it's not gonna be its own type of uh, specialty. I think some people didn't really understand the impact this would have. But in our paper, in our initial paper in JAMA, we described some of the core competencies, and I'm not gonna get into all of them, but some of the things that we mentioned uh, include website manner. And I said before, we learn a lot about bedside manner in our training as medical students and nurses and residents, but very little on website manner, which is equally as important. Also, we have to know how to provide a physical exam over telemedicine. Now, I did a telemedicine shift yesterday, and I will tell you, if you asked me five years ago that I'm going to be doing telemedicine and examining patients, I wouldn't have believed it. There are actual best practices and ways where you could examine patients. And I, I do want to make sure that this is limited, but we've learned through shared experiences and best practices how to conduct a patient exam virtually. We actually uh, published a case um, of uh, patient-assisted uh, exam to help diagnose appendicitis, um, where, we, where we help the, ask the patient to help us examine themselves. And we do it on a regular basis. Uh, and then the final uh, thing, another aspect that we discuss in our article is, how do you best present yourself? You know, it's not just about getting on, on, on a FaceTime that you do with your grandparents or your friends. Presentation matters so much. Are you wearing a white coat? What is your framing? Um, you know, are, are people able to see you? How's the lighting? These are aspects that we feel that people needed to be taught uh, and are critical to make sure that uh, the visit is ideal. Michael, any comments from you? It's, it's fascinating to think back, to, to look back at that time, which wasn't a long time ago, and to see how a degree of negativity from some quarters about the concept of the medical virtualist. And some of it was protective of what people know and how people were trained. And I think we can all respect and understand that. And yes, it is true that everybody will do some, some kind of telehealth interaction. But as there are people now, hundreds, probably thousands already, of physicians who have been hired full-time in the United States to only do virtual health. The Cleveland Clinic employs virtualists as an example. And this is now a, becoming a career choice as another option. And those people will require special training. Similarly, depending on the specialty, I can see that there will be some specialties where there will be a track where the person will be predominantly virtual. 
this is a, a dramatic change. And while I say all do some telehealth, all physicians do some telehealth, or some care providers, that's going to be all they do. You know, you mentioned about uh, there's a need for different skill set. There's a need for how to understand how to do a, a physical exam with a patient when you're remote. Can you talk a little bit about how does virtual health change medical decision making? One thing I want to just point out is that we need to realize that there are some limitations when it comes to telemedicine. Okay, telemedicine could certainly help, but it might not be the right modality for every single encounter. However, the thing that we realized, especially during COVID, was that it creates access. It gives um, patients access to care providers. Just imagine all those thousands and millions of patients that we did telehealth visits on that, say, didn't even have COVID, had any other concerns, and they didn't have access to speaking to doctors. What would we have done? That had a direct impact on their health care. Now, telemedicine, let's give an example in terms of stroke patients. Many rural hospitals, uh, small hospitals, emergency departments uh, that are not at big academic centers don't have a stroke team, don't even have neurologists sometimes. But the utilization of telestroke has impacted the care we provide to our patients. Patients could start getting treatment, in this case, TPA, early on, which has a direct impact on outcomes in terms of neurological improvement. We also now uh, utilize telemedicine for remote patient monitoring. We're sending patients home with pulse oximeters, blood pressure monitoring, and all of these other modalities that make a difference. Um, community paratelemedicine, where we send paramedics to patients' homes to make sure that they're taking their medications, that we need to adjust their medication, that they're doing well, reducing admissions, improving the quality of care. So these are just some examples where telemedicine has made an impact on medical decision-making for the better. Excellent. You know, last year, you co-authored an article in the International Journal of Emergency Medicine that looked at the differences between in-person practice and virtual care. We've talked about some of the skills needed. Can you give some specifics on how a virtualist needs different skills and also what a physician or a nurse practitioner or a PA who's involved in virtual medicine, what can they do to help optimize the care they're delivering to their patient. Yes, so um, this article was um, uh, built upon the first article um, that we first discussed the concept. And without getting into too many details, we broke it up into three basic domains in terms of core competencies. Some of these include, you know, making sure that our providers are being taught on body language, for example, the gestures you have, the movements. They could have an impact like blurring the video and not having an optimal visit. We also talk about the way, what colors you wear, wearing solid colors and having a neutral background are important. You know, now we're all doing Zoom. You see some of these Zoom backgrounds, you know, while they're good for Zoom meetings, they might be distracting, might not be the best for a patient provider encounter. The way we position the camera, you know, we talk a lot about empathy. We talk a lot about looking patients in the eyes when we do, do actual in-person visits. It's equally as important to make sure that the camera has the clinician's head and shoulders at the center to make sure that the provider is ma maintaining eye contact by looking at the camera and not the screen. We also talk about, uh, uh, in, in the paper, talk about certain core competencies that people have to have regarding the medical legal aspects. They have to understand the law, the HIPAA requirements. For example, and I'll tell you, it's very easy to, if you don't really understand the laws, to not get this right. If a patient calls you from a particular state where you might not have a license in, you're not allowed to do that uh, telemedicine visit. 
I know uh, during COVID, a lot of uh, some of those restrictions are relaxed, but the fact is people have to have an understanding of the legal aspects, the billing, the insurance aspects. These are things that people and providers are not necessarily taught. And finally, the last domain that we discuss is how do you utilize certain remote monitoring devices and incorporate that into your telemedicine visit? I did a shift yesterday during telemedicine and I frequently now ask patients, hey, do you have a smartwatch? What is your heart rate? And many patients have blood pressure monitors at home as well. So you have to know how to incorporate these kinds of remote monitoring devices that some patients might have into your practice. You know, you mentioned about COVID-19, uh, Real Cornell Medical uh, Center, New York Presbyterian was in the, the middle of the New York pandemic response. Can you provide some insight into how the pandemic expanded telemedicine as patients wanted to avoid in-person visits? And of course, many providers wanted to avoid contact, unnecessary contact with their patients. And also that you wanted to have social distancing in your, in your practices. So can you give some insights about how COVID-19 and the pandemic changed how you use telemedicine and also patient preferences for telemedicine over an in-person visit? Yeah, so one big reason why uh, New York Presbyterian, while Cornell, as well as Columbia, were successful in terms of our telemedicine program during COVID was because we already had a well-established infrastructure. And that was really the result of support from senior leadership. We had a well-defined leadership team across all the campuses. So we were able to pivot and expand our telemedicine programs. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, typically for urgent care, we saw maybe 20 to 40 patients a day at, at one of our sites. During the peak of COVID, we went up to almost 300 visits. So we had to figure out a way to actually increase capacity, get more providers on, and to make sure patients were receiving high quality care. We also developed telemedicine into our discharge process. So many of our COVID patients that were presenting to the hospital with mild respiratory illness might have been hypoxic slightly, but we sent them home with pulse oximeters, but we wanted to make sure that we followed up with them with telemedicine visits. So we did many telemedicine follow-up visits. Our virtual urgent care platform, as I mentioned, expanded, but then the, the fire department and the 911 system here in New York City was overwhelmed with the number of phone calls that we received from citizens that were suffering from COVID-like illness. So we then partnered with the fire department in New York and the 911 program to establish a, a telemedicine program where some of these patients were diverted to our telemedicine program and we were able to provide telemedicine visits. We also utilized telemedicine carts in the isolation room. So one of the things about COVID was that visitors weren't allowed in, patients that were suspected of having COVID were put in isolation rooms. And this is, from a patient experience standpoint, was probably one of the most difficult times and one of the most isolating times for patients. So we put telemedicine carts in all of these isolation rooms so patients could then communicate with their doctors, their nurses, their care managers, and other people as part of the team to improve the patient experience. You know, you identified how telemedicine allowed you to substantially increase the number of providers addressing patients without the limitations of having clinical office space. I think that's extremely important, uh, as is your description on how telemedicine is moving beyond the standard office visit and primary care to being used in complex care management, discharge planning, for example, and, and follow-up from patients who have been discharged from the hospital and may still be seriously ill or having chronic care management issues. 
Can you give some insights on how telemedicine is expanding beyond the, the standard office visit? Before we could just get onto that, just one point about the COVID discussion is that COVID was such, it continues to be such a monumental, of such monumental impact. And, you know, one is really trying to look at, is this, what's the impact of this going to be as the COVID restrictions lessen? You know, we've already discussed that, you know, 1% of Medicare visits used to, uh, you know, used to be telehealth prior to COVID. And then we went up to 50, probably 50% of Medicare visits. Interestingly, I had a chance to get some input from a number, more than one EMR company, and they're seeing the number of visits may actually not be in total going back to what they were before in total, because more people are questioning the need to go to the doctor or to go to the hospital. And this would be an interesting impact. And most people think that you get, we're going to be left with 10 to 15% of visits being by telehealth as opposed to the 1% that we had previously. You know, as far as expanding beyond uh, the office visit, you know, up until eight months ago, I would say the majority of healthcare providers saw telehealth for minor ailments, with the perhaps exception of, say, rural specialty clinics. On the other hand, the available technology to take it beyond the office visit is incredible. If you think of Apple Watches, this has been mentioned, our ability to measure blood pressure on wristbands, EKGs, Bluetooth technologies, there are wristbands that can alert you to an epileptic seizure. There's an app for, the, for your phone that has been shown to be as accurate as a physician and telling you if a particular mole uh, requires biopsy or not. So you've got a whole lot of new technologies that with the COVID encouragement and the, the post-COVID acceptance are going to be used a lot more. Now, you mentioned the chronic disease management, which is a boundless area where, in general, our healthcare delivery system in the United States is weak. We tend not to have well-coordinated care for chronic disease, and we have lacked in our presence in patients' homes and the coordination of care between home and hospital. And I think this is where you're going to see the explosion in virtual health, in telehealth, as we take what was uh, born out of necessity, but then leverage technologies that were being developed anyway to come to a, a new norm. You know, my favorite example now relates to outside of the traditional chronic lung disease, respiratory disease, kidney disease, relates to the fact that anybody like me who recently had an orthopedic injury and had to do physical therapy post-op and all their appointments were canceled, they had to do it virtually. And then people are realizing that physical therapy is perhaps needs to be done every day. You're not gonna go into the doctor every day and gee, maybe we should do this remotely with new tools and techniques that can quantify it. So I think we're at the beginning of the telehealth tsunami, which will be good for healthcare delivery across the world. And we're excited to see where this goes in the future. Very interesting. You know, so far we've talked quite a lot about how providers need to change how they address the patient. 
telemedicine is a very different environment. And I think many patients are unfamiliar with the technology of telemedicine, and they may be reluctant to schedule a telemedicine visit. I was on the New York Presbyterian Will Cornell patient portal, and I looked at how it refers to a telemedicine visit as a video visit, trying to make it more familiar to your patients. Can you give some advice on how our listeners can educate their patients to prepare for a telemedicine visit so the patients will be more familiar and ready to visit with their, with their physician and receive care in a different environment than the standard office visit. Yeah, Dave, uh, great point. And, uh, and I, I wanna emphasize that while we talk a lot about telemedicine training for our providers, it is equally as important that we make this easy for our patients. Patients don't wanna uh, download multiple applications, press, you know, enter things multiple times. We have to make it easy. We have to make sure that it's also available in multiple languages. You know, things that we're addressing to make sure we address those disparities. In terms of patients, there's a few things that, that I could tell you that they have to be aware of. And, and, and I think the most important thing is patients have to be prepared. So if you're an institution and you're implementing a telehealth program, you should have certain guidelines and key tips that patients should read before they come on. First of all, make sure the technology is working especially the internet connection, make sure the camera and the mic are working and the, and, and the phone has access to them. We probably, uh, for patients that have, uh, for people that have grandparents and, and others that aren't as technology savvy, just imagine how much time you try to tell them how to turn something on. Just imagine it's with the patient. I had, I had a telemedicine visit yesterday and we had a little technical glitch, but it was really about patient education. Patients should also be prepared for an in-person visit. So while you might be doing a virtual visit, you need to do the same thing when you walk into a doctor's office. Have a list of questions. Make sure you know which medications you're on and, and be prepared to answer any questions. Also, you know, this is something that, that after doing hundreds of visits, um, I've seen that this ends up being an issue is patients should know that they should use a private space that they're comfortable in. Most patients don't go to the a doctor's office and, and, and have an interview in the hallway or in a, in a non-private setting. It should be the same way for telemedicine. Make sure that they feel comfortable and if there's others in the house that patients are aware that they might be able to hear them. Like I said before, if patients have smartwatches, thermometers, blood pressure monitors, and all these other things at home, they should be advised that the doctor might ask you to get those to see if they could help in the, in the evaluation. Expect a potential exam. It's not just about FaceTiming. You know, the doctor might ask you to do certain things opening your mouth, putting a flash, you know, shining a flashlight in, you know, uh, showing your breathing pattern to see if you're in any respiratory distress, having you push on your own abdomen to see if, if, if you're having any pain. And the final thing that I would tell patients is be willing to accept some limitations of not having an uh, in-person visit. It's very good. Telemedicine works, virtual care works, but there are some limitations and patients really have to know that there are. Telemedicine has experienced tremendous growth. We've all seen its use, and we're going to see more growth in the future. Can you give our listeners some of your insights into the, what you think is the future of telemedicine? Well, I'll tell you from my standpoint, I expect the growth of telemedicine to continue, as Michael said earlier. I'm not really sure what that sweet spot is in terms of you know how many visits were going to be happening, but with social distancing uh, restrictions continuing to be in place, um, I think telemedicine is certainly going to continue to increase. Now, the one thing that I, I do want to emphasize is the patient expectations for virtual care will change. And what do I mean by that? During COVID, patients were willing to see a doctor, and it really didn't matter 
you know, all these things that I talk about, website manner and all these other things, probably weren't as important to patients because they just wanted to speak to someone. But now as patients are getting comfortable, providers are getting comfortable, I expect that the expectations of the actual visit are gonna be elevated. And that's why we have to make sure that the providers that we're doing the telemedicine visits are prepared. We also are probably gonna see changes in our regulatory and billing aspects of telemedicine. Right now, um, due to the CMS restrictions being lifted, we were, able, we were able to bill a lot of these visits. But the fact is telemedicine will also uh, become a value-based platform. We will have to show that telemedicine is providing high-quality care that's effective. So I, I expect a focus on remote patient monitoring. This entire concept of hospital at home, such as the community paratelemedicine program, sending, keeping patients out of the hospital and providing more care, and this virtual hospital concept, I think is going to be real and you're going to see more of it. And there's going to be other opportunities in virtual urgent care, mental health, provider-provider consultations that I think you'll be seeing. Michael? I, I, I agree with, with, with all those points. You know, I would, I'd like to go back for one second to uh, the patient needs for a telehealth visit, and then I'll segue into the future. We sort of need to remember that there are going to be a lot of patients who don't have access to adequate Wi-Fi. And providing adequate Wi-Fi throughout the nation needs to be a priority, not only for healthcare, but for, for living. Similarly, if they do have Wi-Fi, they may not have the appropriate device. And you're seeing more and more organizations mailing devices to patients uh, to use for monitoring, whether it be oximeters, for example, or even uh, mailing them uh, dumbed down smartphones or iPads that they could use for virtual health. So uh, having said that, let's talk a little bit about the future. What I would, the only thing I would add to what Rahul said was that the issue of the impact of, potential impact of virtual health on the cost of healthcare, I think is gonna become more and more important. I think that using telehealth can reduce unnecessary excursions to the doctor and hospital which can sometimes result in perhaps optional testing. And I think being able to do more and more at home and having to use judgment, which will become more and more refined, particularly with remote monitoring, will be able uh, enable us to provide, I think, better care and at, at a lower price. I don't think that our previous model is sustainable and COVID and the escalation of virtual health is, I believe, on a trajectory now to help rejigger and reorient the healthcare delivery system in terms of both cost and quality. Excellent. Thank you so much. You know, there's so much more we could discuss. Is there anything else you would like to add to today's discussion? No, Dave, I want to thank you. I want to thank uh, Dr. Nokomovitz for giving me the opportunity to share our experiences. Um, and, you know, I, I just want to let people know that telemedicine is here to stay. You know, telemedicine training is extremely important. You know, you'll see a lot more academic literature out there. I mean, we published a lot. You know, we host a national conference on virtual healthcare, which we've done for three years. But you're going to see a lot more coming your way in terms of telemedicine, in terms of education, research, as well as training. And uh, I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to share our experience. Uh, yeah, Dave, what I would add is that uh, it's important for all healthcare providers and all those participating in the delivery of healthcare 
to really consider this an opportunity to provide better access for their patients, uh, more ongoing communication with their patients, and a better outcome at a lower cost. And I, I, th I think some good, a lot of good will come out of what has been a tragic experience with COVID, and the telehealth technology is going to be a big part of it. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know our listeners will find our discussion most interesting. I found our talk today to be a learning experience for, for myself as well. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.